0: Thanks for tuning in to i Time. Tom Williams, before we jump into uh, what I hope is an interesting discussion with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich on her new book, A House Full of Females, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism. Uh, we have a couple of comments that have come in uh, from my listeners. Last week we uh, talked about health care, specifically uh, health care reform and the uh, Republicans' uh, attempts, which uh, look like they're going to come to a head in the House this week, to repeal and replace Obamacare. And I encourage the listeners to uh, let me know their uh, personal situation with health care. And this is a response from Tim. Tim says, Hello, Tom. I'm 40 years old, male, father. I want coverage. I want to pay. I cannot afford $1,000 a month. I've not been to a doctor in 20 years. I'm in good physical health, and I want a checkup. It is not worth 12000 a year. What, what do I do? In an open market, we quote-unquote vote with our participation. I don't participate. Prices are not conversely going down. I would like a checkup once a year and some emergency coverage for my son and I for uh, 1200 a year. Uh, who do I talk to? And that is uh, Tim. I don't have a specific answer, Tim, on who do you talk to, but uh, thank you for uh, sharing your experience. And then we received uh, this from uh, Kylie, who alerts us to a situation in Moab. Uh, Kylie, I understand that this is uh, probably also a pitch for us to do an episode on this. For Access Utah. We'll consider that, and uh, we'll get this on as a comment as well. Kylie says this is info about the proposed Lionsback Resort in Moab. that has been in the making for 10 years. If approved, it will have major impacts on the community of Moab. It is right next to the Sand Flats Recreation Area, and at full capacity could have 2,000 people there a day the calculation below of possible daily capacity. SITLA has been bullying the city council on this to get their way, going as far as saying they do not have to abide by our zoning codes. I've included audio from SITLA discussing the resort. I've also included articles in a website that has archived many of the articles and other information including possible water contamination from this project. The citizenry is in an uproar about this and do not want it. Listening to the audio of SITLA talking about this, community like it's a commodity is infuriating. Moab's future is bleak if all the proposed developments are approved. We're being overrun by tourism, and now there's the new USU campus and many large developments and hotel resorts proposed. It's truly mayhem down here, and our city county officials can't keep up. The citizenry, land, and ecosystem are suffering. And that's uh, Kylie. Thanks for that alert, Kylie, and we'll uh, consider this for uh, possible future programming as well. Now uh, we go to uh, my conversation with the Pulitzer Prize winner, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, on her new uh, book, a note about this conversation. It was recorded last week when Professor Ulrich was on the USU campus, so we can't take your phone calls, uh, but we uh, would certainly uh, receive your email to upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to welcome back to this program uh, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, uh, who was recently on the USU campus to give a presentation in the Tanner Talks series presented by the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And her talk was in celebration of Women's History Month, titled What a Life of Wandering, Insights from the Diary of Caroline Crosby. Caroline Crosby is one of the uh, uh, people whose uh, diaries uh, were source material for a new book. From Professor Ulrich, titled A House Full of Females, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism, 1835 to 1870. those of you not familiar with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, she was born in Sugar City, Idaho. She holds degrees from University of New Hampshire, University of Utah, and Simmons College. She was a 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University, or she is a 300th anniversary university professor in Harvard University. Past president of the American Historical Association. As a MacArthur Fellow, Ulrich worked you know, on the PBS documentary based on A Midwife's Tale. Her work is also featured on the award-winning website called DoHistory.org. And she is immediate past president of Mormon History Association. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her new book is a mentioned house full of females. Uh, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, so you have a, a phrase that I probably will uh, never be uttering in my lifetime. You said In another interview, you said you felt like the MacArthur freed you, in a way, from the pressure of the Pulitzer. <laughs> so congratulations on both those prizes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, t- tell me what that sentence means. What
1: Well, what happened there? Uh, MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, uh, you do anything you want to. I mean, it's somebody it's winning the lottery without buying the ticket. So got a phone call. You've won a MacArthur Fellowship. We're going to send the first check in a few weeks. Um, No obligations, no reports, nothing. And so it was open time to do whatever I wanted to do or money to expand in a way I wanted. And the Pulitzer um, had come with a, a not formal obligations, but with a lot of press, mm-hmm. a lot of invitations, a lot of mail, and I sort of foolishly tried to answer it all. Um, and so I was kind of tired, and uh, the MacArthur, actually it gave me the freedom to take some time off from teaching to participate in the documentary film Based on my book, A *Midwife's Tale*.
0: Mm-hmm. *Midwife's Tale* has been has been mm-hmm. quite influential, I think, and it, it it's it's an example, I guess. I don't know if this is the genesis of, of your approach, not yours alone, but uh, you, you definitely in the. Uh, I'll just quote this: your, your approach to history has been described as a tribute to the silent work of ordinary people, and you say you aim to show the interconnection between public events and private experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm what is called a social historian, but unlike many people who work on the so-called unknown people, my work has not been quantitative. That is, I haven't worked with averages and typicality. I've used actually some of the techniques that I learned as a graduate student in social history to apply to difficult um, source material. So Martha Ballard's diary was very boring to most people who opened it. The weather, you know, how many yards I took out of the loom, um, planted cabbages, whatever. And what can you do with that kind of material? Well, one thing you can do is look for patterns, which is something that a technique that we use in social history, Hmm. The other thing you can do is reconstruct stories. Beginning inadvertently, you don't know this is going to turn into a plot. You see a number of references to illness and to infections. In one of the early chapters of the book, I really was able to reconstruct the evolution of uh Streptococcus infection, what we would recognize today as Streptococcus, um, in this community and see Martha Ballard not just as a midwife, but as a general practitioner who's caring for everyone from a little baby to uh, the minister.
0: Hmm. Um, I want to get into uh, something you said in the introduction to the latest book, which again is A House Full of Females. Um, and then I want to get into plural marriage and 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 the experience of plural marriage right yes um you you say you you wanted to concentrate on diarists mm-hmm. um and and not memoir so much as diaries. you go on to say diarists didn't know how things would turn out there's mm-hmm. an immediacy there
1: yes, absolutely, so I went for immediate records, not just personal diaries like. You know, I had worked on, in a midwife's tale, but other kinds of day-by-day letters. You know, here's what I did today, writing to a faraway husband. Um, Minutes of meetings. um, Even autograph albums, because they're dated. We know when it was written, and we begin to trace relationships among people signing their names in a particular Album. I use some artifacts. Um, in the years since I published A Midwife's Tale, I've done a lot of work with material culture, with reconstructing lives through the kinds of objects left behind. So I did a bit of that hmm. in this book as well.
0: By the way, you talk about a quilt. Yes. It was quilted at the 14th Ward in, I think, Salt yes, Lake City, right? Yes, Salt Lake right? City. Which at one point had been cut in two. A uh-huh. man wanted to give it to his daughter, so he cut You're it into. Right. two. Right. Miraculously, over the years, the decades, um, the two halves were found and put back together.
1: Yeah. Carol Nielsen found it. Um, her husband inherited one half of the quilt and in a very nice book that she published a number of years ago. She told the story of the creation of the quilt and then identified the quilters. They had signed their names, sometimes the date. It was a, a kind of a diary. It was an immediate record. And thanks to Carol's work, going through and identifying 63 of the quilts, 63 of the quilts had signatures, uh, excuse me, 63 of the 70 quilt squares had signatures, and she identified almost all of those women. I then took that and went beyond her research to contextualize it in terms of what was happening in the world at the same time and also to connect it to themes that I had developed in the early chapters of the book about Plural marriage, about the organization of the Relief Society and other themes that were important. So it became a, not really the culminating chapter of the book, but a really important chapter for bringing together multiple themes in one place.
0: Mm. You, uh, you cite an estimate that men diarists, if you compare that to women diarists, it's about a 10 to 1. Usually uh-huh. that might be an underestimate. To oh, the,
1: I think the, it is the, an the underestimate, yes.
0: Why, why, why so many more men?
1: Well, that's true broadly in history. Men leave more records, often because records are generated as part of a job. And in this case, in Mormonism, they seem to be part of a religious responsibility, often for men who go off preaching. Serving missions, it was often adult men, not as today among Latter-day Saints, you know, 18-year-olds. These often were, were older men who were married and left families behind. But they were encouraged to keep a journal as a record of this mission. Some of them, remarkably, kept writing when they came home. One of those men was Wilford Woodruff, who later became a president of the church. But as a young man, still in his 20s, he um, became a Latter-day Saint, served a mission, and began a diary. That extended from 1835
0: to 1896. Some, Unbelievable. Yeah, you say some 5,000 typewritten pages.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's pages, just, an just incredible. incredible.
0: And you use his diary, I think. In, his in this,
1: diary uh, is very important to the book. The book begins with Wilford in his diary brings in Phoebe Carter, um, who married Wilford in Kirtland, Ohio, in 1837.
2: And I
1: follow them hmm. through the book, but bring in other characters as the story develops.
0: he use Wilfred Woodruff because he wrote every day, I think. Right? Every it's, day. Yeah. yeah. He, he becomes faithful, yeah. a
1: kind of spine for yeah. the story. Yeah.
0: In fact, he preached journal keeping, right, to, to a, other people. He
1: preached journal keeping, yes. Um, he believed it was the source of scripture. You know, hmm. keep an account of God's dealings with you. And he told... The missionaries, don't worry about what you have for dinner unless, uh, like Elijah, an angel brings you food. Mm-hmm. Then you can write it down. But, of course, he didn't keep his own advice. Mm-hmm. He wrote down lots of things that weren't involved in his uh, religious responsibilities. And so it becomes uh, just, a, I, I consider it a great American diary.
0: Mm-hmm. You you say that uh, of course women's duties and words were considered essentially private and, and yes. therefore you know wouldn't wouldn't be part of the historical record right. at least that was their intent um, and so this is kind of poignant that you know men's diaries at least in the Mormon tradition tended to be in bound journals yes women's could be on backs of maps or um, scribbled over by children later you know,
1: yes yes and they often disappeared. So um, there are more men's than women's writings because probably in the beginning more men wrote, but there are also more because the men's diaries were archived and survived. Hmm.
0: What do we get? I just want before we jump in fully into the book. Um, what do you think we get uh, using social history? I think it's the, the the label you've you've put this. You know mundane things, ordinary people's lives, ordinary people's journals. What do you think we get from that, and what do you think is lost if we don't follow that approach?
1: Well, uh, it's absolutely crucial. Particularly, I'm writing here about a new religious movement. There are probably a lot of visionary people in the world. Only a few attracted thousands and then millions of followers. So to understand that phenomenon we really need to know about the people who actually took the words and attempted to translate them into practice. And that you you cannot understand any religious movement, I would argue, without understanding the followers, as well as the leaders, and often without understanding women because um, There appears to be a pattern, historically, of predominant membership of women in many religious denominations. And so why are they there? Hmm. What are they getting? What does this mean through their eyes?
0: Hmm. Before we go to break, um, I want to treat, we we talked about this at length in our last conversation a few months Mm -hmm. ago. Uh I want to treat it briefly here and and get any updates. And that is this uh this saying, right, this meme that's been associated with you. Um yeah. irrevocably I think associated with you at this point.
1: Yeah.
0: Um well behaved women seldom make history. Yes. It's on T shirts and mugs and uh, you know, memes and uh Right. Uh this is just a, a kind of a passage you, you wrote in a paper.
1: Yes, it was in the introduction to a scholarly article, actually, on uh, Puritan funeral sermons.
0: Who knew, right? Who knew? (laughs) This would have a life of its own. Yeah. Um, Do you still get reaction, feedback? People still contact you over this?
1: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Particularly in the recent Women's March um, after the inauguration, I got lots of Lovely pictures of signs with these mm-hmm. words on them. It's a very, very nice kind thing for people to send them.
0: As, as the originator of this, this, I guess you, you're consider, I guess people would want to send you this kind of thing, yeah, right? Well, it's you, yeah.
1: Fun. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So after the women's march, you did get. Uh,
1: I did pictures and absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Uh, recently, in a talk that I gave at a college, a student came up. I usually get. Comments from students about the slogan. A student came up and said, uh, Professor Ulrich, would you mind if I tattooed this?
0: <laughs> what did you say?
1: I said, Oh, I don't mind. Yeah. You know, I should have said, I'm not sure your mother would approve. But anyway,
0: yeah. yeah. I guess it's better than a lot of things that oh, you yeah. get tattooed, right? Yeah. 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 Let's take a break. When we come back uh, more with Laurel Thatcher-Ulrich, she is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, and uh, she was on the USU campus recently to give a talk in the Tanner Talk series presented by the USU uh, um, College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And uh, the talk was, What a Life of Wandering, Insights from the Diary of Caroline Crosby. Uh, Laurel Thatcher-Ulrich's current book, very interesting book, is called A House Full of Females, And uh, we'll talk more about that when we come back.
1: Welcome to Science by the Slice. The early bird gets the worm. Common North American sparrows called dark-eyed juncos assert their superiority early, says USU ornithologist Kimberly Sullivan. Short-term benefits may accrue to young birds that attain high dominance status early, she says, because juvenile birds that socially dominate their peers are more likely to be successful and efficient foragers, which helps them avoid predators. In addition, the assertive birds tend to be of a healthier weight and have higher oxygen-carrying
2: capacities. These benefits make them more likely to survive harsh winters and become prolific breeders. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science. Offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cash Chamber of Commerce presenting the Cash Business Summit at the Riverwoods Conference Center on April 20th. From 8.30 a.m. to 4.00 p.m., featuring keynote speaker, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox, and nine targeted breakout sessions. Registration information available at cashchamber.com and 435-752-2161.
0: We are back with uh, Professor Laurel Thatcher-Ulrich. She is a 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University, past president of the American Historical Association, uh, she is recipient of the MacArthur uh, Fellowship, also the Pulitzer Prize, as I mentioned. And uh, she lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She was on uh, the USU campus recently giving a talk in the Tanner Talk series from the uh, USU College of Humanities and uh, Social Sciences. And we're uh, happy to have her with us for the hour. Uh, so, A House Full of Females. The subtitle is Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism, 1835 to 1870. The title is intriguing, House Full of Females. Where did that come from?
1: That came from the diary of Wilford Woodruff. One day he noted in his daily entry, found the house full of females. Um, He was a polygamist at this time. He had three wives. He was about to acquire a fourth. But he wasn't talking about his own family. He was talking about a meeting he had attended that day, at the 14th Ward in Salt Lake City, and it was a meeting of the Relief Society, and his first wife, Phoebe, was president of the society. So when I read that diary entry, I knew almost instantly that that was going to be the title for the book, because it brings together two things, the household, plural marriage, and then the public lives of women, um, not just participation of women in public activities and voluntary activities, but groups of women. The Relief Society was an association of women, a house full of women in that sense, and those were my themes. I wanted to take us away from a way of looking at early Mormon women simply as people in plurality in their homes and see them as people who were actors in community with other women.
0: Hmm. You use the word gathering as significant. What, What does that mean to you in the context of this book?
1: Well, gathering is a Mormon concept that when a person accepts this new faith, they have an obligation to leave wherever they happen to be and to gather and join other Latter-day Saints in a kind of covenanted community, a chosen, intentional community that can help to prepare a way for Jesus' second coming. So, you know, i I thought a lot about this. Um, We know that Latter-day Saints were encountered mobs, they encountered opposition from the federal government, they went through a lot of suffering, and we sort of think about this, you know, it's a land of religious liberty, how can this happen? You know, some people have written that there's more sustained persecution of Latter-day Saints than of any other group, but I think the gathering is the issue here, not necessarily the faith, Because if Mormons had been distributed through the United States, I mean, 12,000 people wouldn't amount to much. 12,000 people in one town in Illinois, a town that was becoming the second largest in the state by 1844, that was significant. That community could control the political leadership of the county, and it brought that kind of opposition A similar way, I think, in the settlement of the Rocky Mountain West. A lot of the conflict didn't come over religion per se, although religion played into it. It came over control, political control in a democratic society. And this was not an era in which there were protections for minorities. So majority rule... In areas where the Mormons were a um, minority, but a significant minority, could end up in real violent conflict.
0: Um, I want to read a, a passage. This is from uh, chapter 14. Um, I'll, I'll just quote this, this passage. And then I want to have you talk about how you uh, introduced the book, which is a an indignation meeting, uh-huh. a phrase I hadn't been at, or, or at a gathering I hadn't been familiar with, but you say they were fairly common in in, in the 19th century. Um, So uh, this is, in the United States in 1857, nothing was more ordinary than the gathering of white women to sew for the poor. This was no ordinary setting. You talk about this this quilting uh, circle, you know, at the 14th Ward. Um, And you go on to talk about the context. Congress had not only rejected Utah's petitions for statehood, but was considering ways of stamping out polygamy. Benjamin B. Ferris, the federal official whose wife Elizabeth had produced such vivid caricatures of women in Salt Lake City, laid down the essential argument. Latter-day Saints were not just sexual deviants, they were aliens. Although God had allowed polygamy to exist among ancient Jews because of the hardness of their hearts, no modern civilized nation allowed a practice that belongs, quoting now from Mr. Ferris, uh, now to the indolent and opium-eating Turks and Asiatics, the miserable Africans, North American savages, and the latter day saints. The only solution was the ultimate disorganization of the Mormon community. This sets up that that conflict. This this was just for many Americans, this was just too radical. This was this was too much, and in fact Mormons were alien. Of it.
1: Mormons they were alien. And, uh, you know, as Paul Reeves has said in the recent book, they were a religion of a different color. They were not recognized as white people. They were not recognized as Christian, even though they professed a belief in Christianity. And this is a highly significant passage um, from an anti-Mormon book But similar language comes out in federal legislation. Um, The anti-Mormon movement was anti-immigrant. It was anti-Muslim. It was anti-Jewish. I mean, you can hear it in the rhetoric. He's naming all the people who don't really belong in our society and using them to define Latter-day Saints. Um, This is a, for me, this part of the research, um, these themes are repeated over and over, and this part of the research felt to me like um, an aspect of Latter-day Saint history that I hadn't taken seriously enough. Um, I grew up as a Latter-day Saint, I knew there was persecution. I didn't really understand how out there the Latter-day Saint movement appeared to be. And it as I was writing, particularly as I came toward the end of my project, I felt like I was seeing similar things all around me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of international conflict over refugees, over immigrants, fear, fear that something is falling apart that's very precious and really matters to us. And when people act out of fear, they do things they may regret.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's why uh, there was uh, perhaps an expectation, a hope, uh, among some people in anti-Trump forces, that uh, Utah Republican Mormons Uh would, uh, would not... Go for the Republican candidate. Yeah. In the in the end, many of them came home to the Republican Party mm-hmm. because, as mm-hmm. has been articulated by by many you know um, Mormon um, political figures, yeah, if you can other someone else, you can certainly other the Mormons, and the Mormons yeah. have been othered before.
1: Right? Yeah, I felt a sense of identification, and I really think a lot of Latter Day Saints today are. Rethinking, you know, our own experience, because we've been conceptualized and from the 20th, late 20th century onward into the present as super patriots, you know, the ultimate American, the American religion, kind of the epitome of American values at every level. And it's really kind of shocking, particularly for young people to realize, oh, my goodness, we were considered among the worst people. These immigrants are coming in and going to destroy our society. They're being brought in by nefarious patriarchs, you know, who are trafficking in women. And um, it's a a lot to get used to if you haven't grown up understanding your faith in these terms. Uh,
0: So this... um... 1870. You begin the book with an 1870 indignation meeting. Yes. What, what's that?
1: Well, an indignation meeting is a little bit like um, parade or a march would be today. If you want to call attention to a problem, what do what do people do? You march on Washington. You encamp, you know, on the Washington Mall. Um, And it's about publicity. It's about taking a dramatic action that's going to generate public awareness of a cause. Mormons actually had been pretty good at this from early on. Um, You may recall in 1844, um, Joseph Smith making a run for the presidency. I mean, nobody expected him to win the presidency. It was about national attention, getting attention for the cause of the Latter-day Saints. And so in 1870, when the House of Representatives passed a draconian anti-polygamy bill, um, a group of Mormon women organized an indignation meeting. um, And indignation was a kind of moral outrage, Trying to attract attention and get people to say, "We are being mistreated. this is not the American way. They um, organized a meeting, uh, three or four thousand women masked into the Salt Lake Tabernacle. Uh, they didn't let men in the door unless they were part of the press, because they very much wanted publicity, and they got it. Newspapers all over the country found it scandalous, but surprising and puzzling. And they, what, what intrigued me, they printed in some newspapers they they printed the summaries of the speeches. So it's a wonderful source for understanding the point of view of these women as they protested.
0: So uh, puzzling to you know, many of the national press and the people back east, because uh, the, the the narrative was Mormon women are oppressed.
1: They're victims. Right?
0: They're victims we're, of this, if yes.
1: you know, They thought of their legislation as we're going out there to rescue these women. And so to have the women stand up and say, you know, you better make your jails big enough because if you lock up her husbands, we're going to go with them, it was uh, uh, remarkable. And it's been discussed and understood um, from 1870 to the present, actually, as a kind of um, publicity scheme um, organized by Mormon men. You know, parade the women and have them say we're not oppressed, we're okay, uh, you know, was a way to take the heat off them as oppressors. Well, um, it's an interesting idea, and certainly there could have been no indignation meeting if Mormon men hadn't approved But um, it wasn't organized by men. Mm -hmm. It was organized by women. And, in fact, there were 58 of these little meetings in towns throughout the territory. It was organized, interestingly enough, by women leaders in the female relief society.
0: Mm. So women's suffrage came to Utah not too long after.
1: A few weeks. A few weeks. And in the planning meeting for the indignation meeting passed a series of resolutions, one of which was that the, asking the territorial legislature to give them the vote, and another was that they be allowed to send representatives to Washington to plead their costs in person. Very, very interesting. That, I wonder if that could have happened But fortunately, the Senate didn't concur with the House and the legislation failed.
0: Hmm.
1: But they were ready to go.
0: Now, uh, 1871, a year later, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, you say, visit Utah. Yes. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, she kind of squares this dilemma, right, this paradox, by saying, okay, Mormon women are oppressed, but so is everybody, so are monogamous women.
1: Exactly said you've got it all mixed up the problem isn't the form of marriage the problem is that women are dependent on men for bread so she saw it as a fundamental question of economic equality and liberty to choose your own way
0: you're listening to access utah glad you're with us for this conversation with historian and harvard professor laurel thatcher ulrich who was recently on the USU campus to give a talk presented by the USU History Department and sponsored by the Tanner Talk series in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Professor Ulrich is recipient of the Pulitzer Prize and MacArthur Fellowship. Her new book is A House Full of Females, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism, 1835 to 1870. We'll continue this conversation following this break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahans to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahhumanities.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Kane College of the Arts presenting the Choir of King's College featured annually on BBC, a festival of nine lessons and carols, 8 p.m. Wednesday night, March 29th at St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Church in Hyde Park. Details at CCA dot usu dot
0: on the next radio lab tick-tack-toe it's like an arms race it's no holds barred there are legions dying all the time outnumber the enemy enough and you can wipe out anything you can actually see this carnage from space yeah tick Tac. toe
1: we had absolutely no guilt at all like none
0: epic battles on the next radio lab
2: join us tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: If you just joined us, mm-hmm. we're talking with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Uh, she is a professor at Harvard uh, uh, University. She is 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University. Past president of American Historical Association. She's a MacArthur Fellow, winner of the Pulitzer Prize author of several books and the, uh, the most recent of which is A House Full of Females Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism 1835 to 1870. She was recently on the USU campus uh, giving presentation in the Tanner Talk series from the USU College of Humanities and uh, Social uh, Sciences. So this uh, polygamy plural marriage was was called sex radicalism, right? This was just, <laughs> as we discussed is this just beyond the pale. Yes. Um, but, as you point out in the book uh you can start to understand how women could embrace this. Uh, you know two things: one is theology, which we can get into this this was bound up in their religion and their religious beliefs, uh, but also as you you point out they'd already pushed against the grain of society, yes. to join this to unusual religion they'
1: been mormons, that is, they had embraced um uh, The idea of modern revelation, that um, just as in the Bible, God called prophets to give his word to mankind, he was still doing it. And they believed that Joseph Smith was that latter-day prophet who had been called to create a restoration of all things and to prepare for the second coming. So um that was part of it, and that was a radical belief. Um But the other radical part of it was going back to older Christian ideas of a, a really co- corporate society, a communal society, in which we shared and shared alike. And there would be, in the words of one of Joseph Smith's, revelations a feast of fat things for the poor it's a biblical phrase but applied to the here and now we're going to create these new gathered communities and we're going to take care of the poor
0: Uh harriet cook i think spoke at that indignation yes meeting and she talked about how she was very comfortable proud even that she had a choice she could she could choose her husband husband Did of you- her choice
1: she chose her husband. The man she chose was Brigham Young. And, was and I guess she's the... still
0: she's still fine with that, obviously, even though Brigham Young had many other wives, I guess.
1: Yes. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of folklore about Harriet Cook, um, that she was bitter and felt like uh, Brigham didn't give her enough attention, and she had only one child, um but, you know, who knows where that comes from. But it was very clear that she was willing to stand up and defend polygamy. And, you know, there are plenty of women in the world, and there were certainly women in the 19th century that would be just as happy not to have the frequent attentions of a husband that liked a a situation where they could share um, – whatever the tasks were in their household with other women
0: what was the what was the lived experience and we should emphasize that you you say in the book uh, some 40% of households were you know, 40% of people were living in households where Plugging was practiced, right? So, In, at the peak, at, at the peak, so uh, l- not forty
1: percent of households, forty percent of the population, of the population, of the population. Okay. So that would include men, women, and children. Yeah.
0: So the majority were uh, not living yeah. me but but a but a large plurality, a were. large
1: plurality, and a a very um, highly respectable, powerful plurality. That is, that was more common among people who were leaders of local congregations or church um, had particular positions in the church priesthood.
0: So, um, you know, you, you looked at diaries and, uh, and you know, what, what women, put, women put down day-to-day, day, uh-huh. their lived experience. Um, right. Maybe tell me, maybe you know, select a woman or two that you uh, found particularly interesting.
1: Well, one of the chapters um, that I wrote um, used... Three diaries and a um, set of letters, sort of in juxtaposition, um, around roughly 1850, which would be just three years after the first migrants came into the Salt Lake Valley. So it's still pretty new practice Um, and really showed the range of experience. So you would have um, a woman like Patty Sessions who was a midwife who was totally in command of her occupation, was very, very powerful woman, and whose husband was never quite successful in keeping a plural wife. He attempted once and the woman left, maybe because of Patty. Mm -hmm. I mean this was not a very happy relationship. When he decided to take a second wife, it's very interesting in the diary, Patty says she's determined to live in peace and she prays she will be able to do so. She fears she may not because of weakness. Well, her husband died. So the issue then became are these two women both heirs of the same man going to live together. So that was one fascinating situation, and I won't go on to give all the details, but there's an older woman with a younger plural wife, and... Is Patty going to end up helping this young woman raise her children? Why, where are they going to live together? Patty doesn't think they can afford two houses and, and so on. Those mm-hmm. kind of dilemmas. We, we need to think of any kind of family, plural or not, as a sort of moving target. I mean, you start out at one age and over the age you may have five little kids at home and then before you know it, They're teenagers driving you crazy, and then you've got an empty house. So when we take a cross-section of the society, there are always going to be people who aren't really living in polygamy, but there's always the potential, and somebody in your family probably has a plural wife. So the contrast of that would be a woman named Augusta Cobb, who, remarkably interesting woman, who actually had joined the church very, very early in Boston, and her husband opposed her. He did not want her to be a Latter-day Saint. And there were surely other issues in this marriage. There seems to have been an intense power struggle in the marriage over who was going to be in charge. And Augusta, at one point, When some of the apostles, including Brigham Young, came through Boston visiting, just picked up her two youngest children and went to Nauvoo. And she married Brigham Young as his second plural wife. And it's a long, complicated story that I can't tell all in a few minutes. But essentially, uh, her husband divorced her for adultery, and she stayed with Brigham and then spent uh, a good portion of the rest of her life um, trying to get Brigham to do things her way. Hmm. So the power struggle continued in this polygamous marriage, but what it resulted in from a historical point of view is just a fabulous series of letters that she wrote to her husband because she claimed she never saw him. So she would put these letters down in writing. And what's remarkable is Brigham saved them. They're there in the Brigham Young archive. And um, she was having trouble with many things. One of the intriguing letters she wrote, she said, I want to go on a mission. And a couple of my friends want to go too. They're Kind of tired of their husbands, they'd like to get away. So please call us on a mission. We're ready to go. We're daughters of Zion, and you know it was very tongue in cheek. I mean, she was a very clever writer. Essentially, was she saying you're always sending men on missions, leaving their wives to manage on own? It's our turn. We'll go on the mission. Um. So the letters are amusing but they're also a kind of insight into the points of tension in the household. The idea of being left without a husband appeared for many women to be the essence of plural marriage Mm. because even if the husband was not off on a mission, he was responsible for another woman and another set of children. And so it was, there, there was this theme of loneliness and neglect that came out. In contrast, Bathsheba Smith, all love and light, <laughs> according to her letters, how she adored George. Uh, when he was there, it was heaven. Um, and you get the full range.
0: Hmm. Um, what about the children. I mean, that's in some of these households, or multiple households, some men would have had many, many, many children.
1: Many children, yes. Um, well, childcare is much more collaborative. I'm thinking of an example of Margaret Smoot, who was the first wife of Abraham Smoot. Um, she had been married before, had fled an abusive relationship and brought her only child, a young son, with her. And she never had any more children, which was a great grief to her. But the other wives had children, and she kind of became mother smoot to all of them. So I'm not sure it was always perfectly harmonious, but in the memoirs of some of the children years later, they talked about... um, having um, more than one mother um, and cared for and loved by more than one woman. And uh, for some households, that was uh, an appealing thing. For others, it could lead to jealousy and
0: competition Mm
1: -hmm. for resources.
0: One of the things in your book, one of the things you're exploring here, you say, is you're exploring the pathways from monogamy to Polygamy, and I'm, yes. I'm interested in in individual pathways. That's you know, if you're raised in Victorian era America, yeah, um, with with you know, solidly ingrained with this idea of monogamy, and and probably I don't know before Mormonism, if that if that was in the background that polygamy is is evil and 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 bad and everything we're fighting against. Um, and then you join this what's hmm. seen as an exotic religion. Uh-huh. And then at some point you become aware of the preaching of
1: royal right. marriage. Well, yes, the pathways varied. In uh, the case of Augusta Cobb, who I just mentioned, the, the pathway was a desire to be out of a situation and the desire to be part of a religious community and to be bound spiritually to a man who was himself considered a kind of a prophet, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Um, The pathway for Eliza Snow, um, she was single. Um, Her sister had actually fled a husband. It's fairly common, quite common among Latter-day Saint women, but I think that's because it's common in the general population that... Divorce is difficult unless you can prove adultery or um, desertion. Well, people often deserted, often divorced by leaving. Men did it most, and that's why women could then sue for divorce. But women also left husbands, and there are quite a number of them. I think. Um, I think I made a count that about 20% of women who entered plural marriage in Nauvoo in the early period before Joseph Smith's death had been uh, married before. Hmm. And a number of them had not been legally divorced, but had come into the LDS community. So polygamy was an interesting solution, especially if you felt... The end times are here. We're preparing for Jesus' second coming. We want to be bound and part of a godly community that includes those who are sanctified. And this, these marriage sealings were part of that process. Hmm. Later, the pathway to plurality, say you're an immigrant to Utah. You know about polygamy by that time. It's not a brand new strange mysterious um it's there um it's a pathway to security it's a pathway to um upward mobility to be part of a household of a prominent man
0: hmm. and of course you've just explained it and and those you know those who whose diaries you use uh-huh would fervently believe this yes but they they would never have been able to con- convince, you know, you know, the newspapers back east or the, or Congress right. or, you know. It, exactly. it, was all, it was always, in fact, the popular media was always uh, delusion or...
1: Well, really what um, they would say is uh, the United States is polygamous. <laughs> really, I mean, uh, not literally, but it's common for men to have more than one partner. They just don't acknowledge them. And in our society, every woman is respected.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I just want to close with uh, this interesting uh, passage. You uh, you say that reading these diaries, studying these diaries, you you notice some peculiarities, of course, mm-hmm. uh, with, with the Mormon community in Utah, but some commonalities with other Americans. Uh, you use this phrase, um... All Americans, including Mormons, had uh, had their boots in the sod and their head in the stars. <laughs> there was that strain of American ide- idealism. The
1: idealism, and yet, you know, here we are trying to build these new communities and living in mud.
0: Yeah. Uh, it, it's it, But the two different versions, I guess, looked askance at each other. But, it, but yeah,
1: Exactly.
0: It was a commonality, yeah. as you point out.
1: Yeah, very. And that's why there's so much tension. I mean, American... Uh, Mormons felt they were the real Americans.
0: Hmm, interesting.
1: They were the real Americans. In fact, uh, I can't remember which poet. It may have been Eliza. The American Eagle has flown, and now come to the Rocky
0: Mountains. Mm-hmm. Talking about Eliza or Snow?
1: Eliza or yeah. Snow? Yeah.
0: Um. So then we bring it full circle. You talked about how, at least in the, I guess, the second half of the twentieth uh, century. Uh huh. Mormons came to see themselves as super patriots. And, yeah, you know, yeah, right. So they're going to you know, back full circle in that case. the
1: reconstruction of the Mormon community in that sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to say uh, that we haven't covered uh, about, about this book?
1: It's a complicated book. It's a long book. It is a book about diaries. It's a book about plural marriage, but it doesn't pretend to either explain or defend it. Um, I've tried to be balanced. Um, For some people, it was a nightmare. For others, it was difficult, but manageable and instructive. It would teach me to be a better person. And a few, it was a glorious new revelation that makes people's lives happy. So we have to be careful about saying, what was polygamy like? It was like many things. What intrigues me is the intersection of this deviant marital practice and the emergence of self-confident, strong women who are able to act in community to make a difference in their lives. And they believed a difference in the world, but certainly in the lives of the people around them, not just through charitable acts, individual charitable acts, but through systemic change by promoting the notion of equality before the law for wives and promoting the notion that women were citizens and had the right to vote. And I think that's really intriguing. I mean, where does that come from? In some ways, you could think of it as a displacement Maybe of feeling a lack of authority within their own community to latch on to the larger story about patriotism and being Mormons. But actually, I think it's a story about dual identities, that um, these are women. They are also, to the core, committed to the Latter-day Saint faith. Sometimes those two things made life hard. As a woman, it was tough, but they also made them powerful in their ability to negotiate one identity in relation to another.
0: Hmm. I think it's a good place to, to leave the, the conversation. We've been talking with Laurel Thatcher-Ulrich, uh, who is 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University, and uh, she's author of uh, several books. She's a MacArthur Fellow and uh, And winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and her latest book is A House Full of Females, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism, 1835 to 1870. And she was recently on the USU campus giving a presentation in the Tanner Talk series presented by the USU College of Humanities and uh, Social Sciences. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah.